So our first full day of practice, and I'm sure you had many different thoughts today, but there might have been some along the lines of, oh, what a relief to actually settle into the quiet. But yesterday was a busy day, right, for a retreat day? Settle into the quiet, the schedule, the silence. But I'm sure you also had a thought of one down and how many more to go? This is a long period of practice that we're settling in for. And it doesn't matter, you know, that now IMS has been holding these retreats for nearly 40-some years, whatever it is. It's still an unusual thing to do, right? To come, especially for this long, uh, to be in silence for this long, to meditate for this many hours a day, sitting, walking, lying down, standing, meals in silence, to do that slow, measured walking. I mean, even if you're not walking at what we call the zombie pace, um, it's still a little unusual. And of course, when IMS first started, the local townsfolk were like, what are they doing? You know, it, it looks strange, right? They're kind of used to us now, you know, especially the people that live close by to have these people just walking by very slowly and mindfully, hopefully. I always think it's good to wave, though. You know, if someone drives by and smiles at you, we want to be neighborly to the community, not kind of rigid about that. So we're part of a community here. Um, But I'm sure, again, if you told People in your circle, maybe some of your friends and family, work colleagues, whatever, are used to you going off and disappearing into silence. But I'm, some of you, I'm sure, had the response of, you're doing what? For how long? Again, it's an unusual thing to do. At lunchtime, I was chatting with Eowyn Olstrom, who led the posture session today and will be coming back to teach mindful movement uh, on a regular basis during this retreat where... So happy that she's able to offer that. It's a great, great benefit for, for, uh, for the retreat. And I don't know if she said this to you, but for the last four years, I think it is, she's been working at Brown University, and they have a Center for Mindfulness Practice and Research. And it's, you know, top-level accredited teaching mindfulness, all kinds of forms of of mindfulness, all kinds of um, ways of teaching mindfulness, classes and even retreats, but um, doing research, doing very um, rigid, not rigid, what's the word, rigorous, rigorous scientific research on the benefits of meditation, uh, of, of mindfulness, health benefits, psychological benefits, benefits for different groups of people. And we were kind of joking around uh, as we were speaking about this, that you, yes, so finally there's the stamp of approval. This stuff actually works. Validating what millions of people for thousands of years, including all of us, know through direct experience. But it has a ripple effect, the fact that this research is being done. And as Eowyn said, even if it means that you tell someone you're going on a three-month retreat or a six-week retreat and they don't say, boy, that's weird, they're kind of like, oh, mindfulness. I don't know how many conversations I've had where I, you know, I don't usually tell people right up front strangers that I'm a meditation teacher, but, you know, if, if it's appropriate, I do. And nearly everyone says, oh, meditation, I need to do more of that. I need to, you know, ha-. and I don't, they don't have any idea what it means. They have some idea it means peace and calm and paying attention. So it's getting out there in the world. Um, and for many people, when you tell them what you're doing, and especially for some people, they're like, you, be silent for six weeks or many weeks, three months. They can't believe it. But, and silence can often be, especially if you're somewhat new to practice or new to long retreats, a thing that might seem a bit daunting. But for many of us, it comes to be the greatest blessing to actually drop into the silence and not be so much in that push and pull of social engagement and chit-chat and niceties and all of the stuff, you know, that's just on the superficial level of speech, but all of the the challenges of speech, just to be in silence, it's actually often the best thing that we love about retreats and appreciate. 
Because as I said the other day, most of us are just so connected. It's amazing how this rapid growth of carrying a a smartphone with you everywhere. I mean, we've just gone from zero to a hundred with it in just seems like the space of a number of years. And there's this constant sense of being bombarded with messages and notifications and updates and likes and all of that kind of thing. And we can get addicted to it. Just so used to turning to that in any spare moment. Oh, I have to wait in line for a minute. And you see people pull out their cell phone for that minute of waiting in line. And people so used to documenting every occasion, every meal, you know, and if it's not online, did it really happen? If you don't have a photo of it, did it really happen? Um, It's just, this is the world we live in. I I read somewhere, um, it was uh, the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a big healthcare um, organization in California, said that 8 to 18-year-olds spend an average of seven and a half hours a day using entertainment media, every day, seven and a half hours. That's a big part of someone's life, just mediated through these devices and all of this, the distortions that come through social media. And it's actually become a kind of physical problem because they call it smartphone neck, right? Text neck of people actually distorting their posture because they're always looking down. And, of course, you can see videos, hear stories of people, you know, texting or reading on their phone and falling into fountains or into holes or certainly, you know, going into traffic unawares because they're so addicted to this device. We have the opportunity here to do almost the exact opposite not to be mediated through a device, but actually to drop into our direct experience in this moment-to-moment, gentle but persistent way that Dawn was talking about last night. And so, as we've said a number of times, tomorrow morning you'll have the opportunity to, if you choose, renounce your device, or plural, if there are those, and as Carol was saying in her gentle way, um, people find it greatly beneficial to do that. So if you want to do that, remember to bring them tomorrow morning to the 8.15 sitting. So this possibility of, of learning and cultivating the capacity to be present, to be here for our experience moment after moment, And one of the big um, places, the most important places for us to bring awareness to, mindfulness to, are our minds, right? It's the minds that create all this craziness. The body just sort of follows along and does its own thing. But our minds, sometimes it's, it's the first thing we see in meditation, right? How unruly our minds are. We have this simple intention to sit down and be present. How many breaths later have you gone off on a thought train of planning or worrying or remembering what you didn't do or what you should have said or what you want to do? This mind is unruly. If it hasn't been trained, it can feel kind of crazy. And it has no shame as to what lengths it will go to to entertain you or distract you or disturb you. Just endless output of stories about ourselves. I like this, and, and often challenging, you know. It's not as though we're just sitting there always happy and content with what our minds are doing. They're often um, worrying thoughts, anxious thoughts, fearful thoughts. Theodore Roosevelt, who was a president of the United States many years ago, said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit down for a month. (laughs) And he's saying what the Buddha said, you know, the second arrow, we cause most of our own suffering through, through our minds and the way we relate to experience. So learning to be mindful of the mind is one of our tasks on this retreat 
one of the tasks of meditation. And I, you know, using this word mindfulness, it's a translation of the Pali term sati. It was someone came up with it hundreds of years ago. And we're now so used to it, we don't even really think about what it means. Mindfulness, oh, it's a mindful of mind? Is that what it means? I mean, it can feel like that at times, right? The mind is full of just all this stuff, of the mind going all over the place. But what it's intending to convey is being present, is actually knowing what's happening. But it's inevitable that will go off onto these tangents of thinking, of discursive thought. We can't force the mind to be present. We can't force it, and you really need to know that. But the more we pay attention in a careful and skillful way, we can develop a different relationship to our minds and a different relationships to the thoughts, the moods, the emotions themselves. And this is what's so key uh, about our practice is this potential for changing, for shifting, for bringing more skill into how we relate to the mind and the contents of the mind. So what is mindfulness? This this word uh, we're translating from the Pali it should be a simple question, right? Mindfulness is what we practice here. It's, as we've said, it's, it's so in at the moment, mindfulness and everything. But if you actually look into this question, you'll find different schools of Buddhism have different definitions or even understanding of what mindfulness is. Us as teachers will often debate, what's a good definition? What's a simple definition of mindfulness? It's actually a complex mental factor. The Pali word sati has its root in memory or to remember. And so we often say, well, it's easy to be mindful. It's just hard to remember to be mindful. And that's your task over and over again is remembering to be mindful. Once we remember, we can be right there, right? But it's, we get lost. We get distracted. The simplest definition of sati is knowing what's happening in the present moment. Just that. But I think it's helpful to expand our understanding of that, especially if we want to um, work skillfully with our experience and especially the experience of the mind. So one of the ways I like to talk about mindfulness is it's an inner knowing but an outer connectedness. So we're in relationship to our own experience and to what's happening. And there's a little bit of reflectiveness in that you know that you're being mindful. It's not a strong thought, but you're practicing mindfulness. There's some quality that you're actively cultivating. Mindfulness isn't innate. Consciousness is innate. The the bare knowing that registers what's happening, but being mindful is a is a mental factor that's intentional, and we need to cultivate it. So, just like right, for example, right now, I invite you to notice the sensations in your right hand. You don't have to move or do anything different, but just bring your attention directly to the sensations of your right hand. It's easy to do, right? If you direct your attention, could you feel those sensations? A moment ago, were you feeling those sensations? Probably not. They were happening. They didn't just leap into existence because you put your attention there. But it was the placing of attention that revealed that experience. This is what we'll be doing over and over again. And the other thing you might have noticed is it didn't take much to direct your attention. I just gave you that prompt, your awareness open to, was directed to, your right hand, and the sensations were known. You didn't have to lean in or hold your hand in front of your face or clench it so you had stronger sensations. You could just easily and simply direct the attention. This is really the heart of our practice. This is called bare awareness or bare attention just simply knowing what's happening. 
this direct connection. And especially at the five physical sense doors, this is what we do a lot in meditation. What are we seeing, feeling, touching, tasting, hearing? So important. But that's just the foundation of our practice. What we hopefully are going to cultivate here is samasati. And this is wise or right mindfulness, and it's a path factor, meaning it's part of the Eightfold Noble Path that the Buddha taught as the path that leads to liberation. Again, many of you are familiar with these lists. The Buddha has endless lists, but the Four Noble Truths of first suffering, the cause of suffering, the end of suffering, and then the path leading to the end of suffering is these eight um, noble path factors, and samasati, wise mindfulness, is one of them. And samma, this word in Pali means whole or perfected or leading onwards, right, right and wise or true, basically conducive to liberation, skillful. This is samasati, and this is what we want to be cultivating, practicing, exploring. And what we can come to see is the purpose, or the, you could say the potential of mindfulness, is that it naturally develops wholesome qualities and naturally decreases and diminishes unwholesome qualities just through this capacity of paying attention with some skill, with some understanding. And also importantly, it's to develop insight. This is called insight meditation. This is called the insight meditation center. I know one of my challenges when I, when I practice, especially in the early years, was where's the insight? I'm meant to be having insight. I will probably be having those discussions with some of you. Um, insight comes when we see clearly. And it can be on a personal level, bringing understanding to our own conditioning and habits and the ways we struggle and create our own suffering. So helpful to understand on that level. But even more deeply or importantly, on the impersonal level, where we start to see clearly into what's called the three characteristics, the three marks of existence, of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. Starting to see with insight, meaning we see it clearly in a way, not just conceptually, but we really deeply understand that this is the nature of every conditioned thing. Well, I'm, I'm, this is a sort of overview talk of our practice here, so I'm dropping in a lot of the themes that we'll be uh, continuing and deepening over, over these weeks of being together. But the three characteristics we'll talk more about. So samasati is a path factor, so important. Bhikkhu Bodhi, that great scholar and translator, says, in the proper practice of right mindfulness... Sati has to be integrated with sampajanya, clear comprehension. And it is only when these two work together that right mindfulness can fulfill its intended purpose, which is to be leading to liberation. He says, Samasati must always be guided in right view, steered by right intention, grounded in the three ethical factors, and cultivated in conjunction with samma vayama, which is right effort. Right effort necessarily presupposes the distinction of mental states into unwholesome and wholesome. So there was a lot in that, and again, we'll unpack some of these teachings and themes later on, but I just thought it was helpful to kind of the big picture of mindfulness and its role in the Eightfold Path. And what's important about the Eightfold Path is it's not just linear. You don't start at one, you know, get through that and finish and go on to the next. It's more like a, a hologram or something that's each part is reflecting and supporting the other part. So he talks about samasati, guided by these other path factors. And uh, ultimately, this... The, the benefit, even the necessity of being able to distinguish 
our mind states into ones that are mental states into unwholesome and wholesome, or you could say skillful or unskillful, or ones that cause suffering and ones that are beneficial. This again is the task of mindfulness, is this discernment. So we see it for ourselves. I appreciate the teachings of Asaido Utejaniya, a Burmese uh, teacher. I think people have already mentioned him because he's so clear on this um, point about mindfulness, that it's working with the mind and especially this distinguishing between unskillful mind states and skillful ones. But he starts by saying awareness alone is not enough. And he translates sati as awareness rather than mindfulness. He just prefers that translation. So you could say mindfulness alone is not enough. Mindfulness is the foundation, as I said, but it needs wisdom. That's what it needs some understanding of what are we practicing for? What are we looking for? What are we cultivating? And what's skillful to diminish, to let go, as the Buddha would say, to abandon. This is so essential. So he says things like, the basic objective of meditation is to improve the quality of the mind. Improve the quality of the mind. I think we'd all sign up for that, right? Some improvement in the quality of our mind. Just to have a clearer mind, a more spacious mind, a more kind mind. This is the work of meditation. He says, the work of awareness, again of mindfulness, is just to know, to know what's happening, this basic definition. The work of wisdom is to differentiate between what is skillful and unskillful. So we need to be bringing in some modicum of wisdom all the time we're practicing, not just you know, sitting back and receiving sensations, but really being curious about what's going on. And he goes on to say, wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the differences between skillful and unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful, as in it leads to suffering. Our practice is to develop this kind of wisdom. That is what is going to serve us in our practice, is that kind of discernment. And so our practice is, through our exploration of our inner landscape of mind and body and our relational field, what's happening out there and how we're responding to it, this is the place of our learning, of our practice. So I love this poem by Mary Oliver. Some of you may know it. Um, And it's appropriate because it's called Mindful. And Mary Oliver is a great nature poet. She's always out in nature um, in this direct immediacy of her experience of nature. So she says, Every day I see or hear something that more or less kills me with delight that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It was what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these, the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean shine, the prayers that are made out of grass? So this sense of learning from everything by paying attention by paying attention in the inner world and not looking for, you know, the fantastic experiences, the heights of bliss, 
But the everyday, the daily presentations, and again on a retreat like this, day after day, from now on, same schedule. How can we keep that freshness, that, that appreciation, you could even say delight, just by being mindful, just by being present? So, in expanding our understanding of mindfulness, I think it's helpful to talk about, and as, a, as a, the wisdom that's um, needed to support wise mindfulness, is the context in which our experience is happening. And I call this the three times. The most important one, the most important time, is now. This moment, right? You hear that again and again. Be here now, this moment, pay attention, what's happening? Jack Cornfield, I've heard him say this many times. It's an old one. Um, he says there's a sign in Las Vegas, which, which is a place where you go to gamble, and casinos, etc. There's a big sign that says you have to be present to win. So it applies in mindfulness as well. So classically... Inevitably, what happens? Intention to be present, but we get lost, right? And people often ask, you know, why do I keep getting lost? I'm such clear intention to be present, and I'm really, you know, trying to be very diligent, and etc. There's many reasons. That's habit why we get lost. I'm more interested in why do we come back? What prompts mindfulness again? The main thing I come up with is more moments of mindfulness support more moments of mindfulness. So it's kind of an iterative process. But at some point, if you are trying to meditate, you will become mindful again, right? However long you've been gone, you will become mindful again. That's, you could say, a moment of grace. We become present again. Our intention to be present arises strongly enough that it interrupts the thought pattern. So we want to be grateful for that moment, not be aversive, judgmental, comparing to what I was like yesterday or on the last retreat. Ah, right, mindfulness, I'm here. So want to know that, want to recognize mindfulness when it arises and know what are we, what's happening in this moment that we're now aware in. And one key way to kind of frame that awareness, again, Saito Utejaniya always says, notice what's present in the mind. Is one or more of greed, aversion, or delusion present? And one way of looking at this, was I trying to hold on to something? Was I trying to push away something? Or was I deluded, spaced out, and I didn't have any idea what was going on? I wasn't even on the planet, really. That's another way of recognizing greed, aversion, and delusion, which are known as the calaces or the torments of mind, the poisons or affliction. They are the source of our suffering. So we want to learn to recognize them. The more clearly we recognize them, the less we're likely to be seduced by them. We've had a lifetime of being seduced by them. So in this moment of, it's like a you know, very quick recognition once you start to practice in this way or be interested in what's happening in the mind. Then it can be appropriate. You don't have to do this all the time, but this is where the next mind or the time comes in, which is the past. It's just a little uh, recollection of what was I paying attention to that led to this greed or aversion or delusion filling the mind. How did I get here? What was I paying attention to? And this doesn't have to be a big rumination of, oh, I thought of that, and then I thought of that, and that made me think of that, and then you're back in third grade and the horrible haircut you had back then or whatever. It's, you can know it in a moment. Oh, it was that stream of thought that type of thought. This is really helpful. With that recognition, we get to track, oh, that kind of thinking leads me into aversion. That kind of thinking gets me lost in lust or desire or wanting. 
And with that mindfulness in the present moment, we can make a choice. What happens is um, mindfulness creates this little bit of space where there's the possibility for making a choice about what we do next. And it can be as simple as what we pay attention to. Oh, back to the breath. Or connect with the body. I can feel there's some turmoil there. Um, We can have a wise response. This is the gift of mindfulness. And then that leads to the next moment, which is the future. Now, of course, the future is never here. It's always the next moment. But I, I mean by this, we start to look at what gets cultivated from this choice I made of recognizing what I was paying attention to and the challenge that that might have brought, what, with some clarity of mindfulness, I choose to pay attention to, what does that develop? What quality of mind or heart does that bring with it? And is it in alignment with our intentions? In the, in the moment-to-moment way of, you know, just wanting to be with the breath or in the larger intentions of what we want to cultivate in our life. Now, this is complex. All of what I've described, it can happen in a moment, but we need to get familiar with this, these three times, present, past, future. What was, what's happening now? What was happening a, a moment ago? What was I paying attention to? What did it lead to in the present moment? And what is my intention? What choices am I making going forward. This is the heart of our practice, this this balancing always of um, wise, skillful response. This is the wisdom coming in. And it's like, you know, riding a bike or something. When you first try it, it seems a lot going on, too complicated, can't keep everything going at once. But as you do it more and more, it's like, oh, right, this. A little glance back, a little recognition, and a little adjustment to being more present, more connected, more open. The challenge, of course, is how to do this without aversion, if something was difficult, or uh, attachment, you know, oh, I love my fantasies, or I want to be more concentrated, come back to the breath, and you're kind of, again, hammering on the breath, really, really clamping down. This is also not skillful. It's, it's a training. We want to do it gently and skillfully. This is the power of mindfulness. And that then can develop into what's called satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. Panya is the Pali word for wisdom. This is a term Ajahn Buddhadasa used a lot. He hardly ever just talked about sati. He would always say, Satipanya, just like Sadhu Teshaniya, because the wisdom part is so important. What are we cultivating? What are we learning? What are we growing from our practice? And Satipanya naturally lets go. Most of our suffering is through clinging and craving. This is the core, you know, the second noble truth the cause of suffering is craving. Satipanya recognizes that craving, recognizes the suffering, and just by seeing it, it lets, it lets go. It sees that it's suffering. We can see, oh, I'm all clenched up. I'm really tight around this. There was so much wanting or aversion. We, oh, people have described suffering as rope burn. You know, if you're trying to hold on to a rope, but it's being pulled by something much stronger than you, it hurts, right? Because the rope is moving. If you try to hold on, you get rope burn. What's, what's the antidote, the remedy? We have to let go. Let go. And so finding balance or equanimity around what's happening, not so pushed and pulled into the aversion and the attachment. And to repeat again, this is the potential or the actual functioning of mindfulness to reduce hindrances, these difficult states of mind that cloud our uh, ability to see clearly, and to naturally 
increase wholesome states. We don't have to actively go out there. We can cultivate them, of course, but mindfulness itself will actually cultivate wholesome states through this quality, this factor of satipanya. This is what we're cultivating. So we're using mindfulness as a training to direct our mental energy into the present moment and to clear seeing. Clear seeing, that's the wisdom part coming in. Wanting to recognize when we're not clear. And usually, as I've said, that's when we're lost in the past or the future. We're in our fantasy worlds. Past is irrevocably gone. Future has yet to come. Yet we build mountains out of both, right? Out of what's happened in the past and either aversion or anger about it, fear about it, clinging to it, worry, anticipation of the future. Training to direct mental energy into the present moment. I love this cartoon from Calvin and Hobbes. Unfortunately, the author stopped publishing many years ago. I think Bill Waterston is his name. But Calvin is about a seven-year-old boy, eight-year-old boy, and he's got an imaginary friend, Hobbes, his stuffed tiger who comes to life. And Calvin is always getting into trouble, and Hobbes can either aid him in that trouble or be a source of trouble, but sometimes he's the voice of wisdom, the imaginary friend. And in this cartoon, Calvin and Hobbes are climbing a tree, and each successive frame, they're further up in the tree, and Calvin is saying, I suppose the secret to happiness is learning to appreciate the moment. Climb higher. I, for example, take great pleasure in being right here, right now, doing what we're doing. Hobbes says, of course, you're supposed to be in school. (laughs) And Calvin says, I couldn't appreciate those moments. And that's our trap, right? You know, we don't often like what's happening in the present moment. It's boring, it's not enough, it's not what we want. And so we get pulled, we get lured into these thoughts of past and future. How do we um, recognize or cultivate mindfulness and start to appreciate the power of the present moment? the potential of the present moment. It's where we live our lives. And as I said before, this choice, this little space that mindfulness opens up where we can choose what next. And then, you know, not in any big sense, but basically what do we pay attention to? What do we cultivate? What are we looking to um, develop in ourselves? And through this potential or capacity, we can actually change deeply ingrained habit patterns. And one of the big ones is this habit of being lost in the past or future. But when we start to work with our minds, to start to see our thoughts clearly, recognize the the type of thought, the content, the challenge of them, the, the, um, the suffering that they can bring, we can actually begin to shift. And as we shift our relationship to the thoughts, often the thoughts themselves or the content also starts to shift. So this is not about not thinking. Of course we will. We need to think. Thinking is a, an amazing capacity of consciousness, so creative and, and um, f- you know, full of possibilities. But it's about relating to a different, finding a different way of relating to the thoughts and especially getting a sense directly, this is insight of where they lead. If I dwell on this kind of thought, this image, this past experience or future potential, where do I end up? And again, if it's a difficult thought, often where we end up is unpleasant, it's suffering. We end up caught in craving or aversion or fear or worry or anxiety. So we start to track that for ourselves. I mean, we know it conceptually, but to actually feel it really so that it's, a, it's, a, it's an embodied knowing, that's, why, that's when it's insight. 
And when I let go or redirect or abandon or accept my experience, these kind, this kind of experience arises. Peace, ease, calm, equanimity, acceptance, whatever it might be. We track for ourselves. As, as Bhikkhu Bodhi said and as the Buddha said on the night of his enlightenment, this discerning, where do these thoughts lead? What are beneficial thoughts? Beneficial for self, other, and both. And they're the ones we want to cultivate. And so we start to learn that um, it's not what's happening that's important, but how am I relating to it? This is so important. Not the object of our attention that's so important, but how am I relating to it? What am I learning from it, you could say? So when I talk in this way, we don't go overboard with questions every time something's happening, like what am I learning, you know, what's happening here? It becomes kind of intuitive. And sometimes if the, the mind, if the thoughts aren't that strong or obsessive, we just recognize them. And you, you know, you probably had this experience where they just fade, disappear. We'll talk more about working with the mind and especially difficult thoughts because um, it's a whole, whole skill of practice. But as we come into the present moment, recognizing that we've been thinking, whatever form, really important to connect with the body. If we have strong or obsessive thoughts or emotions, there will be a resonance in the body. And just redirecting the attention can be so skillful. So again, we're not so lost in the thoughts, but we're grounding in the body and giving the mind something to do to redirect the attention. Really helpful to name the emotion if, there's, if you can recognize it, of worry or anxiety or fear or wanting. That naming and noting that, that Carol talked about is, is so helpful. But we want to pay attention if we start to notice that negative thoughts and mind states are growing. Because if they're growing, something is feeding them. The way we're paying attention to, what we're, attention, what we're paying attention to is feeding those negative mind states. The Buddha often talked about the, this metaphor, analogy, whatever it is, of uh, feeding the wholesome states and starving the negative ones. We want to see if negative, difficult, suffering mind states are growing. What are we paying attention to or how are we paying attention to? What are we paying attention to that's feeding them? Something is. There are causes and conditions are being created that feed those negative states. And the same for the wholesome ones. Or just as important, if not more important, to notice when wholesome states are present. What are we doing that cultivates those? How do we recognize those? And as I said, it's not that we can control our thoughts, but they are conditioned arisings. We, they can seem random, like they're sent in from outer space or something, but they're not. You know, they're the results of all of our previous Uh, choices and places we paid attention, experiences, conditioning, habit patterns, but learning to work skillfully with them is so key. So one thing I really hope you get from this talk tonight is that vipassana, our insight meditation, mindfulness practice, is not just passive. There is a place for just being receptive. We've used that word a lot, just paying attention and receiving what happens. That is, again, the foundation of the practice. We want to pay attention, know what's happening, receive it, be connected with it, accept it. This is, is, this is the truth of the moment. But if something, especially if something's difficult for us, we want to know that there are many options um, for us. And we'll talk more about different skillful means in one of the upcoming talks. But just briefly to say, our first response always is mindfulness. We want to recognize this is what's happening. We want to know, 
oh, it's this kind of thinking or this state of mind or heart, this, this, this loss, this sadness. But then we can use our discernment, our wisdom, to know how to work skillfully with that. What's actually happening? There are some thoughts in the mind and there's some resonance energy in the body. You could break it down. It's as simple as that. Of course, we get lost. We get sucked in and identified to the thinking. But we start just with that. Oh, there's thoughts, and this is how the body feels. That's the basis of attending mindfully. And after that, there's a whole slew of skillful means that we can bring in. Again, someone will talk more about this in an upcoming talk, but we can use antidotes where we bring in something, um, we balance that energy. Sometimes we move to something more neutral, perhaps like sounds. Sometimes we can cultivate or turn to one of the Brahma-viharas. We'll be teaching metta or loving-kindness starting later in the week. Um, to, to balance out, especially if the mind is in a negative state. But as I said earlier, we start to see it's not what's happening that's important. It's how we're relating to it. Because we're not training to be good breathers, to have the best breath ever. We're not training to know every sensation of knee pain. We're certainly not training to get rid of knee pain or restlessness. That's just adding more aversion. We're training our mindfulness and our attention so we understand and can work skillfully with our minds, with our attention. So the training isn't about the object. We can get so focused, oh, if only my knee pain wasn't here, then I could meditate. I could just sit. I had the posture session today. I'm sure I'm going to figure this out and you know, learn how to sit comfortably. I'm sorry to tell you there is going to be discomfort pain even, in sitting in these long hours. And it, we don't, it's not done deliberately. It's just the nature of the body that this is challenging. So we want to work skillfully and be very compassionate. But we're not training to have different knee, a different pain or to get rid of the pain. We're training to pay attention. And I really see mindfulness as kind of like reprogramming all of these habit patterns and conditioned ways of relating, something's uncomfortable, we just want to get rid of it, pull away, replace it with something more pleasant. If you've had a computer for a while, you know that you know as it gets older, it just seems to slow down. It's accumulated viruses or it's gotten too full of stuff, right? You've got no space left. This little red, red mark comes up and says, you need to make more space here. And it's like us, you know, we start out as babies and we've got this great hardware. I mean, it's pretty uh, basic, right? But it's got a lot of potential, can grow. But not much, uh, it's got an operating system, but it's pretty basic. Um, Over the years, we program it, right? We add all these apps, all these programs, all these ways of responding where something happens and there runs the program of my likes and my dislikes and how I am in social settings and you know what I what my work uh, interests are etc cetera, etc cetera. sometimes these habits and programs and conditioning they're helpful we need them to navigate life but over time they burden they weigh us down they become a burden they're inefficient they are not a skillful way to relate to our experience. They're encrusted with old ways of thinking and fears and, and self-judgment and, and uh, self-criticism. Yet every morning we wake up and it's like pressing the button on the computer, all these programs load up and there we are with our personality and our likes and our dislikes and they can feel fairly solid. This is who we are, and we believe them. And it leads to all kinds of stories about ourselves and our potential or lack of potential, our deficiencies, our judgments of others, our projections and perceptions. And we believe that to be the truth of things. It is not. These are conditioned patterns that we've learned over time, learned through our schooling, learned through our family, 
systems and dynamics, learned through cultural conditioning, learned through the different oppressive forces in the society. We want to see through that conditioning. That is not where we will find freedom in those patterns and thoughts and projections and fears. I like this piece from Jacob, Jacob Needleman, who's a philosopher. He says, Our lives are what they are in large part because of the weakness and passivity of our attention. We are taken, our attention is taken, swallowed by our streams of automatic thought. We constantly disappear into our emotional reactions. We are taken by our fears and desires, our pleasures and pains, by our daydreams and imaginary worries. And being taken, we no longer exist as I, myself, here. We do not live our lives. We are lived and we may eventually die without ever having awakened to what we really are, without having lived. Living in this world of conditioned reality, fantasies, projections, self-criticism, delusion, comparing to a computer, meditation is like installing good antivirus software. You know, malware for for greed, aversion. I mean, uh, preventing the malware of greed, aversion, and delusion. And this alert should should light up when you notice greed, aversion, or delusion in the mind. It's like warning, suffering ahead. If you don't pay attention here, know this is happening. You are going to suffer. And what's the simple antidote? Let go. Simplify, relax, become present. Don't believe the illusion of these thoughts, of these stories. Actually know what's happening in the present moment. And there's a lot more to say about that, and so we will. But just to be on the alert, greed, aversion, delusion, They're the source of our suffering. That's what we want to pay. More important than your knee pain is how are you relating to your knee pain. And so as we begin this retreat, we're we're going to be offering a a range of practices, and there are a range of practices in our tradition. And I often like to talk about it as this spectrum. On one end are what we call samatha practices. These are calming or tranquilizing practices that lead to concentration, to what's called samadhi, we translate as concentration. And on the other end is insight or vipassana practice, where we're open to the whole array of changing objects, of the six sense doors, everything that's happening in the five physical senses in the mind. With samatha practice, calming practices, we choose one or a simple object And we just keep coming back to that, to collect and unify the mind, to develop this capacity to be present. This is why we're starting out with some days just encouraging you to be with the breath, this simple experience of being with the breath. In Vipassana, as we'll open to over the days as we expand the instructions, eventually we can be open to any experience. Nothing need be held outside of our meditation. The most ecstatic experience or the most difficult can be held in mindfulness. The Buddha emphasized this collecting and unifying of the mind. He said it was so helpful. Here, we're not, you know, and the deepening of that, the deepening of samadhi can be into what are these states that are known as jhanas, these states of absorption. This is not the level of concentration that we're talking about or encouraging here, but we're encouraging what we call access concentration, which is getting into that neighborhood, getting into that territory where the mind gets collected and can stay present, has this capacity to be in the present moment, doesn't get so easily distracted. This is not easily accessible for most of us. It takes time. 
to have that steadiness of mind. But this is the potential for a long retreat like this. Out of this simple practice of paying attention in the present moment, again, starting with the breath, the continuity of mindfulness is what is key. Continuity in, in all the different parts of the day and postures you find yourself in. And again, we'll talk more about that. So in this spectrum, um, most of us are practiced between samadhi and really open, um, available to everything arising at the six sense doors. We sometimes call that choiceless attention. Some, most of us are somewhere in the middle. We're spending a lot of time collecting and unifying the mind, just coming back to the breath or whatever is our place of grounding in the present moment, body sounds we've talked about, can use, well, I won't go into that, um, those three that we've offered, but then opening up, and we'll talk about that as the days go by. This middle middle um, area is so helpful, but we want to know how to tune, to use that, move that dial more collected, more simple, more quiet, or over the days and weeks of practice here, open and inclusive to everything. This is the, the potential, the path of our practice here. And I love that James Barras, he always describes our attitude to practice as bringing a kind, relaxed, interested attention. And all three of these words are important. The kindness is, the, is compassionate, is warm, is friendly, is accepting. The relaxed we've talked about. It's so helpful to relax mind and body, starting from a place of relaxation, coming back to a place of relaxation. Kind, relaxed, interested. We get curious about all these things I've talked about. What is the mind paying attention to? What's being fed? What's being cultivated? This is our practice for these weeks we have here to explore the capacity of the mind to find greater and greater freedom, happiness, and contentment in this present moment, right here, right now. So I want to finish with the words of Ajahn Chah, that great Thai forest meditation master. He says, As I see it, the mind is like a single point, the center of the universe, and mental states are like visitors who come to stay at this point for short or long periods of time. Get to know these visitors well. Become familiar with the vivid pictures they paint, the alluring stories they tell to entice you to follow them. But do not give up your seat. It is the only chair around. Well, there's a number of chairs, but the only one you have. If you continue to occupy it unceasingly, greeting each guest as it comes, firmly establishing yourself in awareness, transforming your mind into the one who knows, the one who is awake, the visitors will eventually stop coming back. If you give them real attention, how many times can these visitors return? Speak with them here, and you will know every one of them well. Then your mind will at last be at peace. So let's just let the words settle into silence for a moment. So thank you for your attention. There's now about half an hour for walking meditation, meditation in some other posture than the sitting posture, perhaps. But then we invite you to come back to nine at the 9 o'clock sitting, and Greg will be leading that sitting and begin 
um, the chanting that will happen every evening at that time. Because of our protocols, we not everyone can chant, but Greg has the most beautiful chanting voice, so he will um, start leading us in the Karaniya Metta Sutta to get you familiar with it, and over the days, as we can um, hopefully start chanting together, he will uh, begin teaching you that chant. And we know it's been a long day, so um, for this for the next few days or many days, Greg will let you know. You're welcome to come just for the chanting. If, if that's all you can do, come for the chanting. He'll allow you to leave. If you have energy to stay to the end of the sitting, then, of course, welcome to do that. But 9 o'clock for chanting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.